Thanks for being here this evening. My name is Kevin Conover, and you're on Educate for Life Radio. We're broadcasting down here in Southern California. We're on KPRAISE 1210 AM, as well as FM 106.1 in North County. And then, of course, we're broadcast all over the uh, world through social media, YouTube, and, and other platforms. And uh, tonight, my guests are Dr. Olin Brown, who's been on the show a couple of times. Uh, a big blessing to have him, as well as uh, Dr. David Hollander may be joining us this evening. Um, the two of them are the uh, co-authors of Neo-Darwinism Must Mutate to Survive. And um, a little bit of background on uh, Dr. Brown, if you, if you haven't heard him on the show before, he is a professor emeritus. He's a board-certified toxicologist. He's got a PhD in microbiology, and uh, he has all kinds of awards and um, appointments that he's been involved with throughout his uh, very long career um, as a uh, microbiologist. And then also uh, Dr. Hollander, Dr. David Hollander, he has a PhD uh, from MIT. His major was mechanical engineering. He's a senior member of the Institute of Electrical and Electronics uh, Engineering. Um, he's also a member of the American Society of Mechanical Engineers, and he has numerous awards also in his very long career. And uh, it's an interesting uh, team up here, um, Dr. Brown, uh, you and Dr. Uh, Dr. Hollander um, ended up writing this. You have uh, two very different uh, fields of science, although I I'm sure there's a lot of overlap there, but uh, what caused you to decide to write this, um, this article together uh, that is in um, the Progress in Biophysics and Molecular Biology Journal? Dr. Brown? And I wanted to do something important in this paper that has to do with probabilities. And uh, I felt that he would add a great deal to that. And so that was the reason for us to get together. We, we've been long-term friends. That's fantastic. Now, um, you cut out a little bit there in the beginning. So you were, you were talking about you, you felt that his experience, his, uh, experience with mathematics and engineering would be um, helpful in, in looking at the probabilities of uh, neo-Darwinism uh, biologically actually taking place. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay, Certainly great, great. Is. Okay, um, well, that's a, I think that's a pretty cool um, looking at that. And, um, you know, this article is uh, very in-depth and um, anybody can get this article if they want to get it. Again, uh, this is published in a peer-reviewed journal which is Progress in Biophysics and Molecular Biology. The title of the article is Neo-Darwinism Must Mutate to Survive. Um, what, what is uh, the point of that title there? What does that mean, Neo-Darwinism Must Mutate to Survive, Dr. Brown? Well, the idea of mutations and selection is a part of the idea that we are here by evolutionary processes. And it, it traces most of its origins back to the book that Darwin published. Uh, I believe it was in 59, 1859. Yeah. Uh, a great part of, uh, of his book has to do with the idea that uh, we are here by chance. Chance, yeah. and he didn't understand, didn't know about a lot of the science that's been discovered since then. But one thing that has been consistently uh, true is that people who believe in evolution are interested in um, a mechanism for evolution that 
involves the idea of uh, survival of the fittest. And we'll come back to that in a moment. Actually, um, Darwin in his subtitle referred to, uh, as a subtitle, the preservation of favored races in the struggle for life. Now, he meant races there in a little different sense than, than we might talk about it in popular culture. But it is a sort of a shocking statement. Uh, a friend of his, Herbert Spencer, uh, actually was the first to use this term, survival of the fittest. The two are, mean somewhat the same thing, but survival of the fittest was preferred by even in the beginnings of evolution. One of the reasons was that the idea that favored races might be preferred had some in, intonation that they didn't like even then. Uh, you mean, Spencer you was, mean like a racist, a racist uh, intonation? Uh, they weren't thinking of racism. They were thinking that it um, appealed to God. That, oh, interesting. That something had to prefer, and, and the idea of a natural selection, nature selected. And so that would mean that nature had a purpose, and they didn't like that, even in the early days. So Spencer wanted him to change over and talk about survival of the fittest, uh, rather than to say preservation of favored races in the struggle for life. It, it's, a, it's a difference that has significance, at least to the evolutionists. Yeah, and I, um, I noticed that in your article that you were emphasizing that. Um, I, I read that where uh, Herbert Spencer, this is on page 27 of your article, or um, page 27 of the journal, I believe, but um, it says here, uh, he, he's the first one to use the phrase survival of the fittest. And he even wrote to Darwin, I, I guess, suggesting he not use um, the word natural selection because it was personifying nature in a sense and making it uh, confusing people because obviously it's either God, obviously nature is an inanimate object. It can't, it can't select anything. And so it sounded uh, unscientific to him is what you're saying. Yes, and, and even in, in a paper of 15 pages, like our paper, which is mm -hmm. a review and perspective, uh, you can't deal with all aspects of evolution. It's such a broad uh, deal. Yeah. We wanted to focus on this aspect on survival of the fittest. Actually, it's what we call a... a it's it's a meaningless term, really. Uh, what survives the fittest? What is fittest? It's what survives. It's, it's circular. circular reason. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> it's not a very useful term. No. Interesting. Um, I had a question you wrote in here. Um, something really interesting. Um, this is on page twenty-five. It says the example of the long-running experiment where um, E. coli acquired the ability to use citrate as an energy source was it interpreted in 2012 as a speciation event, but subsequently it was concluded that an amplification of certain uh, lo loci, loci and DNA rearrangements were responsible and it was an artifact of the experimental conditions and not a unique evolutionary change. I, I wanted to ask you about this because in my own uh, studies of this, as far as I understand it, this is the largest effort ever made 
it to um, demonstrate evolutionary progress um, through trying to get bacteria essentially to evolve. And what I understood, and correct me if I'm wrong, was that the, the major change that they achieved with the bacteria was getting it to eat, essentially metabolize a, a new kind of food. Um, and That's correct. Can you, can you explain what you're saying here that this ended up not being a... First of all, why would they expect it to be a speciation event in the first place? Because it's still bacteria. Um, but beyond that, what was it that proved that this was not a speciation event? It's an evolved story. Let's see if I can make it simpler and clear and clarified. Um, the ability to use a, a particular organic substance for its nutrients depends on the presence of certain enzymes. Uh, and indeed, to use citrate, you have to have a number of enzymes, not just one. And in fact, it relates closely to part of the research which we, will, we talked about in our paper, the probability that you could develop something called a Krebs cycle. Krebs yes. uh, under, was the first to understand a, a whole series of reactions that don't mean anything unless it's a completed circle, completed series. And that series of changes uh, produces ATP, which is the energy source for all cells. It mm. charges our batteries, if you will, allows us to grow, allows us to think, it allows us to run. So the Krebs cycle is, is, foundation, is foundational to all life uh, essentially existing. Uh, to most advanced life. Okay. The idea here in this paper, putting it as briefly as possible, is that they had organisms that could not use a particular substance called citrate. They were looking for a change in the organism so that it now could grow using citrate. It could use a different food source. And they studied it for years and kept culturing it and kept, kept culturing it. And they finally isolated some changed organisms that had this new ability. And they said, oh, that's a major significant advance requires a number of things. This proves in the laboratory for the first time, we're actually seeing something evolving. It wasn't changed to a new kind of bacteria in the sense it didn't look different. It wasn't changing into a swan or something, but it acquired a major new metabolic ability, but they were wrong. And they were wrong for reasons that are complicated, but proven to be wrong. And, uh, and the organ... I'm sorry. And no. the, the, um, you know, the scientists who were working on this, they today uh, have confessed that they were wrong also. Is that, is that agreed upon? Uh, I don't know what their current position is. It's been very quiet. Uh, I don't think it's been contested that they, that, that it's not, uh, it's not a speciation change. Okay. Uh, you see, um, could we give another example for bacterial change that is uh, true and valid, but, but not a species change? Um, we all know about antibiotics. Sometimes when we're ill, the doctor prescribes something. And generally today, they're cautious. They say, if you really don't have to have the antibiotic, we won't give it to you because we are concerned that it mm. will cause mutations or changes. It really that, doesn't that, cause mutations. It selects for those that can survive. That the person will become uh, resistant to, or the, I'm sorry, the, uh, 
whatever they're trying to 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 um, you know stop with the uh, with the um, antibiotics will become resistant to it, and they won't it won't work anymore. Essentially, correct, and and that is true. That's something you can validate. But it is a small change. It's a, it's a micro evolution. The difference here is important. We, we might talk about what's micro, M-I-C-R-O. That means a small change. Uh, yeah. We might talk about compared to macro. To, to yeah. and get the species change is macro. You have to make a big change. Yeah, the big the, the, the distinction on a real layman's level is uh, different kinds of dogs, micro evolution, um, you know, cat to dog macroevolution, uh, that's, you know, real, real basic terms. Um, and as, as a Christian and as somebody who believes in the Bible and in creation, I'm okay with microevolution because there's evidence for it. We can observe it, but I'm not okay with macroevolution because, uh, first of all, the Bible doesn't teach it. And second of all, science doesn't support it. There's no actual, uh, strong scientific support to, to validate that. Is that correct? That's correct. And could I add something there on the difference between micro, M-I-C-R-O, which is small change, and macro, which is a large change? Absolutely. Uh, actually, a number of years ago, there was a an evolutionist. He, he wasn't Bible-believing. He wasn't Christian, as far as I know. Uh, but he had concerns about can we show anything that really represents a species change? Mm. Uh, the Bible doesn't talk about species. Species is a word invented by Linnaeus scientists to classify. It's legitimate. Yeah. But uh, the idea of kind is, is, is much bigger change than sometimes what we call species. But uh, the person I'm talking about was, his name was Gould, G-O-U-L-D. Mm. Mm. And he had this idea that small changes could happen, but what we see in the fossil record is large changes, changes that are major. And he actually used this descriptor, which he was criticized greatly for. He said, let's suppose a dinosaur laid an egg. It hatched and a bird flew away. Because evolution teaches that birds, all birds, came from originally dinosaurs. Mm. And, but they couldn't find the intermediaries. Uh, Archaeopteryx is a bird-like creature. It's fully bird. Yeah. Uh, it's been yeah. used as a, a missing link, but it, it's really fully bird. That's all we see. We, we don't see missing, or we don't see the intermediary steps. And so it's significant here that speciation changes are major changes like in body parts. How do we explain that you go from uh, water breathing to lung breathing? That's yeah. a big, big change. How do you do that in one step? Yeah. And, and if you do it in multiple steps, then you don't have the power to save those up. You, you, you can can make microscopic changes, but the only ones that have survival value would be when they're completed. Half a wing, no good at all. In fact, mm. you are at a disadvantage. Yeah. So that doesn't make sense. Uh, and, and all I'm saying as a scientist is I want things to be logical. I, I want the right for myself and my students to challenge 
things that they don't understand or don't think are correct. And, and today we're moving into that area. It, it's sort of like the political correctness that has descended on our culture. Uh, it includes science, unfortunately, today in one respect mm. that, that we're not free. Uh, I had difficulty getting this paper, uh, not difficulty with this editor and with this journal. Mm -hmm. But if I had sent it to science, I don't know if it would have been accepted. I have other papers. Published. Even though you're quoting in here, you're quoting numerous evolutionary scientists who really are questioning their own paradigm and saying, hey, there's major holes in here. Sure. We need we need the freedom to be able to uh, look at alternative ideas and explore other avenues without being, you know, uh, given the scarlet letter um, because we happen to question it, right? Correct. I, I think that traditionally many of the famous well-known advances in science back going from the 1700s to 1800s and through part of the 1900s the, the well-known scientists if i would name them your people would would remember them or recall having read about them in science uh, they were many of them were bible believing uh, either christians or you know some of them weren't fundamentalist Christians in the sense that we have understanding today in some sects. Sure. But uh, Newton, Newton was a Christian. He wrote more words about religion than he did about science. Yeah. And he's one of the greatest scientists in the world. Yeah. And we didn't know about some of his writings in religion until a few years ago. And, and they looked at his records and his, uh, his writings and they found all this stuff that he had, he, he spent more time on religious subjects than he did on his science. And he's noted as the greatest science in the world. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. And, and I mean, you can look at Galileo and uh, Copernicus and uh, uh, Louis Pasteur, and uh, there's just new, numerous scientists that were, had no problem with reconciling their love for science and their love for God. It was not, uh, they were not mutually exclusive in their eyes. Right. And, and for your audience here, if I might take a little aside from what we're saying here, but it fits for me. Sure. Um, when I'm critical of evolution, I look at it like I do other theories or other ideas in science. We need to test them. We need to be free. We need to be open and have our work that's legitimate published so that other people can interact. The problem I see today about evolution is that there is much in the science textbooks that is flatly wrong. Mm. Some of it are, they keep publishing hoaxes as if they were real. They, they keep the peppered moth. You probably know about that. Yeah. Uh, that I could, could take a moment with that as one example. Yeah, the peppered moth uh, is still being published in science books, you're saying, yeah with the and, landing on the trees and everything yeah and, and the point is that these moths do it's it's relevant and absolutely correct that in england at the time with more industrial smoke being produced that the 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 moths that were darker in color uh, fitted in better with some of the soot and things that we're collecting on trees and other places. The place, the point is that that's a small change. Some people yeah. went back later and found that there were white moths. It, it's a change in color. It's not a speciation difference. 
all of the genetic information is there in the moth and, and, and it can produce one or the other. And this has been a huge problem for a very long time in discussing um, the facts, you know, is that uh, the, the semantics are confusing. It's, um, it, it's equivocation. It's, it's taking a word and make it mean, meaning so having so many meanings that you, it's hard to have an intelligent conversation because everybody says, well, what do you mean by that? And, and everybody means something else. I wanted to read this from your, uh, from the publication here. I thought this was really interesting. Um, and I wanted to get your, your comments on it. Um, Dennis Nobel in the article physiology, uh, is rocking the foundations of evolutionary biology. Um, you put this, or th this is a quote, as 2012 came to a close, an article appeared in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences of the United States of America with a title that would have been inconceivable in such a prestigious journal only five to 10 years ago, rocking the foundations of molecular genetics. My title echoes that of Maddox, but it also goes further. It is not only the standard 20th century views of molecular gen genetics that are in question. Evolutionary theory itself is already in a state of flux. I will show that all the central assumptions of the modern synthesis, often called neo-Darwinism, have been disproved. That that quote right there is stunning to me. I, I I almost can't believe I'm reading it. I mean, is this guy is this guy a creationist or what? What's going on? <laughs> uh, I've never spoken with him about his religious uh, leanings. Yeah. Um, it, it's it's based primarily, in my view, on the fact that there is so much that has been assumed uh, with respect to evolution. And it is, it is true that, that you can't really do experiments. You can't do an experiment for a million years. Mm. So, but that doesn't give you a license to say that we can make it up and we can, and we can say. Could I say something that I think is important in this context? Uh, I'm sure you have a wide audience uh, with differing views, perhaps different denominations, different uh, backgrounds. Why is a Christian at all interested in this aspect of science? Mm -hmm. One might ask that. Mm -hmm. um, for scientists who are Christians, it's important. Um, I believe uh, it was First Peter 3 verse 15 says that as Christians, we, I'm, I'm adding, I'm paraphrasing. Sure. As Christians, we should always be ready to give a reason uh, for the faith that's within us. And, and it goes on to say we should do that with meekness, and I believe it says with fear. Hmm. The meekness is important. Uh, you know, if you're trying to lead someone to Christ, these people, such a person comes with a different background, uh, whatever, it might not be important. It's certainly not the first thing that you would say to the person that you're trying to lead. Yeah. Uh, you know, don't believe in evolution. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but there are, and it's also true that, that I have a lot of friends. Some of them are not scientists that, that say, well, I have no problem with evolution. Yeah. Uh, Billy Graham said he didn't have a problem with evolution. The Pope from 1950, the Pope since then, have embraced evolution with some caveat. They, they want to reserve the fact that in humans, the soul had to be added by God. Mm. Um, I'm not trying to be critical of anyone's evolution. Praise God if, if you believe in Christ and you've accepted. Uh, I don't want to disturb you. But 
it is disturbing to me that about the time people get into high school, about the time they graduate, go to college, their, uh, their attendance, if you look at polls, and polls show various things, but I think it's true, I've observed it myself, that a lot of people go away from, maybe they don't dis discard their beliefs, but they're certainly not active. And it's only when they get children of their own that some begin to come back. And, and I'm saying, hey, if you're an intelligent person, and everybody I hope is intelligent, let's take a look at what we can think about evolution. How does it affect our worldview? Mm. Uh, the worldview of the evolutionist, the, the atheist is the one that's furthest out on the pole of differences. But your worldview has to be that everything happens by chance. All the stars in the starry sky above, every plant, animal that you see, all the humans, we're here by chance. We're purposeless. We were, the, the whole universe is full of sound and fury, but it means nothing. Mm. If you're an atheist, yeah. If you're an atheist. Yeah. Uh, now, there's a, there's a middle ground. There are people, and I'm not saying you can't believe in evolution to be a good Christian and all this. But I'm saying, if you're going to explain it, think about it. Because there's going to come a time when it may make a difference in, in your ability to witness. Yeah. And, well... Uh... Um, I mean, we, we got to be kidding ourselves if we don't think that evolutionary theory has an impact. You know, I had a student who said to me, Mr. Conover, he said, he said, I'm so grateful for your class. It really uh, helped me because he said I was actually starting to leave Christianity because um, I couldn't reconcile what I was taught in my public school evolution with what I was reading in the Bible in Genesis. And he said, and one was called science and one was called faith. And I figured, well, the science is the one that has the facts. And so I don't want to believe something that's not true. And, you know, I, I, I think it's, you know, there may be people that can feel like, okay, I, I found a way to make evolution fit with my Bible and I can still be a Christian. But I, there are many people who don't feel that way. And um, Paul says it very specifically. He says, watch your life and doctrine closely, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And he specifically says doctrine. So um, some people think it doesn't matter. Nothing matters except that I believe in Jesus Christ. Well, the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that the word of God matters and uh, all scripture is useful for, you know, teaching, reproof, all these things. And so it's not, uh, um, you know, it's true that evolution, you know, whether you believe it or not, is not a salvation issue, but it's still incredibly important and impactful on for some people, whether they decide that Christianity is true or not. I mean, I run into it all the time. Um, along those same lines, I wanted to ask you something else about the, the article that you published. Um, I've never heard this before, and I don't know a lot about it. And so I'm curious to learn a little bit more from you about it. Several, in several instances in your paper, you reference that many um, people have claimed that cancer is an example of evolution in action. Um, can you ex expound on that a little bit? Um, what is going on there? Why, why are they using cancer as um, an example of uh, actually macroevolution, I think, or, or maybe it's microevolution, I'm not sure. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, as, as I said, um, when uh, Darwin promoted evolution, the idea from which all of our current thinking, even though it's been modified, it comes all comes from that. And 
he didn't understand what was the source. In those times, they didn't even know about the gene. They didn't know about DNA. They didn't know how things were, how things were inherited. Uh, they even thought at one time that, that changes that are called biological uh, change, changes in our body can be inherited. Mm. Uh, there was uh, Lamarck who said, if you cut off the tails of mice, each generation for long enough, the tails will be born with shorter tail, or the mice will be born with shorter tails. Uh, there's evidence that, that Darwin actually incorporated that thinking. But mm. we, we be careful about how be critical we are of people because they didn't know, no one knew how it's done. Yeah. So what I'm getting to here in cancer is that we know about mutations today. Mutations occur by changes in the gene, mostly by mutational changes. Those changes cause cells to go wild, as the phraseology is. They and become when you, immortal. They grow. They continue to grow. Dr. Brown, when you say mutations, just for, for uh, the sake of our audience, are we, we, you know, there's 3 billion letters in the human uh, genome. In, in each cell, there's 3 billion letters. So you're talking about one of those letters being incorrectly, uh, the wrong letter being put in there in that 3 billion instruction code. Is that what you're talking about? Correct. Okay. And so, it has consequences. Can I say the consequence? The yeah. change in the genome, if it occurs in your sex cells, if it occurs in a cell in your skin, it can cause a local cancer. Well, I'm getting off the start. The important thing about the genetic change is it has to be in the gene cells to be passed on. Most of those changes are either lethal or they don't change anything for the good. Hmm. And the important thing in my paper here is that you can't save those up. Their survival of the fittest is the only mechanism that they talk about. And if it takes 10 changes before you make something that is, coll is collectively a change that means meaningful, there's no way to conserve each of those 10 steps. Uh, yeah, I hear what you're saying. I, the, the, you use a metaphor in your, I, I underlined this um, analogy you, you put in here. Can I read this analogy you did? With oh, the, uh, absolutely. I love analogy. Uh, yeah, <laughs> this is great. It says here, by analogy, consider that you exist on a deserted island. You must create the Empire State Building or perhaps a space shuttle. Each is arguably simpler than the simplest living cell. What would you require first? You may request anything, but there is one requirement. Progress must be shown after each request. You cannot do stuff out of sequence and save it for later. Evolution is random. There is no purpose. To construct the Empire State Building, would you ask first for an architectural blueprint? Would you ask first for carpenters, electricians, interior decorators, HVAC specialists, steel workers, special materials, engineers, power equipment, a government permit? The sequence is essential because survival of the fittest does not allow you to save any, anything against a future convenience. For example, you might receive all the necessary I-beams. With no blueprint, how would you assemble them? However, the blueprint also is useless if it is all you have initially. Survival of the fittest by analogy at the end of each day would not let you keep something even if it has great but only future value. After day one, there is a pile of perfectly good steel. However, it is not on the way to becoming the bones of a skyscraper. You are not allowed to save anything that would be a help in the future. There is no purpose 
no self-organizing principle, survival of the fittest is insufficient for macroevolution. I thought that was a fantastic analogy. Well, thank you. Uh, I created a little poem that goes along with that. Perhaps that is uh, outside of what you want to, to say, but it fits here at this point. Uh, I, I used a parody with, with Shakespeare to, to try to point that out. So you're I, an artist. You you're, an, you're an artist and a, a scientist. <laughs> well, <laughs> maybe not. But um, I, I think you mentioned analogy. That's that's really relevant to me because as an educator and as a writer in science, one of my you know I don't have a purpose unless I can say things in a way that that people remember or that they associate with. Yeah. That they, and one of the ways to do that is to, to teach people or, to, to, excuse me, to, to, to talk to people in ways that they can relate to. Mm. Uh, can I give you a short example? Yeah, please. My, old, my youngest granddaughter uh, just started amazing me when she was very small. I, I, something would come up in a new word and she would say, oh, uh, and I would see her line going and she would get a smile and she would say, you mean it's like this? And she would give the, the perfect comparison, the new word, and she would explain what it meant out of what she already knew. And you know, when you can do that or when you can teach someone or help someone so that they say, oh, I understand, then it's useful. Uh, if we yeah. give people information that they're not looking for, that they don't know where it fits. Uh, have you ever not been able to remember someone's name? You're too young to do that. Oh, no, no. But that, sometimes, that happens to me all the time. <laughs> a little kid thing you can use. Go through the alphabet. Yeah. Start A, B, C. And suddenly a, 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 one of the letters of the alphabet will start flashing. And okay, I'm going to remember that. <laughs> so what I'm saying here is that uh, your audience, some of, they're everywhere, I'm assuming. Some of them uh, maybe think, I doesn't matter to me uh and i'm saying here think about your worldview is it consistent with your worldview uh does it make a difference maybe not to you but there is going to be that person whether it's your own child a relative a friend an associate that you're trying to help uh and as i said it's not the first thing we bring up but you need to be prepared so i'm i'm suggesting you know think about the fact that it means whether we're here by God's purpose, or whether we're part of a purposeless, meaningless, how do you find meaning in your life beyond your daily existence uh, without God? And yeah. if we're here, uh, you know, if we go back, you say, where did you come from? And evolutionists says, well, it goes back. They don't want us to say ape, but they do want to say that we have a common ancestor. The ape came something a different, and one of those apes became human. And if you go back from that, where do you go? You go back to other life forms and eventually you get back to bacteria. Mm. If you start from the other direction, you have first life as being formed. How does it get here? They say that the, the earth formed as a fiery ball. It cooled down. The earth it rained on the earth for millions of years. The, the, the oceans turned into soup and the soup came alive. Yeah. And, and so in a sense, if you believe evolution totally, you believe you came from a rock. Yeah. 
Yeah, that doesn't give you a lot of uh, purpose there. <laughs> that doesn't give you a lot of uh, inspiration, right? Um, no, and and I think that's a real that's a real issue for many people. I think for many people, um, it does affect the way you think. It affects your view of other people. It affects your view of life. And uh, there, you know, ultimately, we want we want people to have the hope of eternal life. Um, you know, there are many people that are very very afraid of dying. And the reason is, is because they don't know where they're going and they don't have confidence in, you know, an afterlife. And so um, we need the hope of Jesus Christ so that we're not uh, clawing here, trying to uh, hold on to something that's going to fade no matter, no matter how much you want it not to. The reality is, is um, there, no one escapes death, you know, unless Christ returns or unless you make Christ your savior. So <laughs> I think I didn't answer your question about cancer. Can I say just a word on that? To yeah, please. That up yeah, a little go bit? ahead. Mm -hmm. uh, the important thing here is that we believe that it is a genetic change. It's, it's something, some kind of mutation that, that results in the cancerous growth. Uh, so in that sense, an understanding of cancer and an understanding of evolution becomes important with respect to a medical issue. What is true about evolution now impacts something very real. So we need to encourage the understanding. Do we have the right understanding about changes that are legitimate, that do occur? Because it may help us uh, to, to treat cancer. For the so, most, are they, yeah. so, so Dr. Brown, are they saying that because cancer, right, the cell, um, has a mistake, a mutation in the genetic code, they're saying this is upwards evolution because that cell now is starting to take over other cells and dominate the human body. They're saying this is upwards evolution. Is that what they're trying to say? They're, as Not an example? Exactly. Not exactly. Uh, they don't have to be consistent. And no one would be able to maintain that uh, cancer represents any improvement. Exactly. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. The, the, the connection is, as I said, uh, we need to understand cancer. If we accept it as a mutational event and mutational events are what motivate or what, what allows evolutionary change. If we're wrong about that relationship, we apply that wrong information to our understanding of the mutation of the type that can lead to cancer. If we're wrong about that, then we're gonna not solve it. So if, if we can, if things are wrong with our understanding of evolution up here, and if we can correct that, then we can apply the correct knowledge to this other, these other changes. You see, it's my contention as a teacher in biochemistry, microbiology, involving genetics and, and involving uh, genes and, and biochemical processes, that there is nothing that I can think of that I would do differently, I would teach differently if I accepted evolution as true. There's nothing in what is talked about as evolution that is... Hmm. Most of it's more, not more than descriptive, but where it is, it doesn't inform me. It's not necessary. I could, mm. I could erase it from my lecture and my student wouldn't suffer. I see what you're saying. Yeah. There's nothing, there's nothing there of substance that actually has any real world impact on, 
on um, science per se, but although philosophically, it certainly has real world impact. Um, but from a scientific perspective, you know, it's neither here nor there. We know that the, that modern genetics uh, changed when in 1953, when Watson and Crick uh, discovered the double helix, yeah. which was a beautiful understanding of, of how information can be present in a molecule that can be replicated faithfully, that can also mm -hmm. serve as the information for making all the proteins and specific proteins that are functional in our body. So that, a, a, that's a great, great advance. And it's, it's unfortunate that, uh, that the evolutionists still use that idea and accept it as true, but they don't go the next step. Where? You know, the genes have information. Where does the information come from? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the question. That's you, the you can't question. randomly change something and create information. If you have a computer program, you probably know that more about computers than, than, than certainly more than I do. Oh, maybe. Uh, <laughs> if you take a computer program and you start messing with it and change it here and there, are you yeah. going to create a, a better, a newer program? Or no, you're going to what? Mess it up. Yeah. The correct, the correct thought for mutations is error. That that's generally what's going to be happening yeah this is a quote from your um uh from from your um article here it says here um perry marshall published in 2021 in the progress in biophysics and molecular biology it says here uh, there are no examples in the literature to show that the laws of physics and chemistry can produce codes or that codes produce cognition cognition remains a mystery and so um, literally, there is no scientific evidence that you could generate an informational code like uh, DNA uh, with, without some sort of outside intervention. Um, the, the, the natural laws of science just don't produce that. And that's one of the things in, in this paper, beyond challenges to the concept that survival of the fittest is a useful construct. We go forward to say, that one of, the, one of the things I'm trying to say in this paper is we need to make some changes. We've been stuck, and, and you, you reported, reported there on a paper that says there's been a sea change. Uh, that is true in some sense, but we're still stalled. We're still, we're still not realizing our full potential as scientists to think creatively and to question and to throw out what is not valid and what is not meaningful. And I'm making a call here in this paper to say to the young scientists particularly, we want to give you the opportunity. If you have a good idea, let's fund it. And let's not, let's not refuse to fund it simply because it, it might not be in agreement with evolution. You know, when I used to review science uh, requests for NIH and other uh, institutes, uh, one of the things that concerned me was not the really good paper in deciding whether it was number two or number three in the ones that we were reviewing, but, and, and not the really bad papers. There were some proposals that came in that you'd say, well, you know, that, that's their life. No, it doesn't matter. But the ones that worried me were the ones that that were 
somewhere so novel that I'd say I, that I could reach, I could say, wow, that's where's this proof? Where's this evidence? Those are the ones that I worried about. Am I throwing away something that is so novel that I'm not able to perceive what he's what he's saying? Mm-hmm. And when you only can fund 15 or 20 percent of the people that come into you, uh, that becomes a concern. You don't want to throw away those novel, bright, good ideas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's a tough thing. But but, um, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of voices out there saying, hey, um, especially in the in this scenario with evolution, with evolutionary theory, there's so many holes like um, they, they keep you reference this constantly in here. The um, the modern uh, synthesis is flawed. Um, and, and there has to be an opportunity to look at different ideas because the current ones aren't fitting it. And what's happening is it's almost like people are deciding we don't have an alternative view. Therefore, we're just going to go with something we know isn't, doesn't work. (laughs) And that's a horrible place to be, especially as a scientist, you don't want to be in that position. But, um, Dr. Brown, we're almost out of time here. I wanted to give you a chance. I don't know if you have your book. Um, you wrote the book miracles, there, if you have it and you can hold it up for our audience, um, uh, Dr. Brown has been kind enough to, um, he'll give you a free copy of this. If you'll just give us a right, you can send me an email, um, through educate for life. I'll, I'll be happy to pass that on and we'll get a copy to you. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that book before we, before we, uh, go off the air here? Well, yes. Uh, the subtitle is a little bit long. Uh, the book is Miracles. It's titled Everything That Is or Was or Is to Come is a Miracle. And it's written as a revelations from scripture, science, and life. A scientist looks at the evidence. Um, I would be schizophrenic as a Christian if, if I said that I believe science over here and it's different from what I uh, during the week. And it's different from what I believe when I go to church or when I talk about my religion. There are other important scientists historically have said, you know, no, there's not a truth that's true for science and a different truth for religion. And so in the book, um, I found a quote by Einstein. Uh, I couldn't find for certain that he said it. I wanted to be sure to find where it was written. It is attributed to him, but nobody's found where he wrote it. To me, it was very meaningful, and I didn't discover it until I was almost finished with this book where I was talking about miracles. And he said, everything is a miracle or nothing is a miracle. There's only those two choices. And to me, that just rings very importantly true. I can't look at the starry sky. I can't look at my grandson. I can't look at myself in the mirror. I can't look at, out my window at the beautiful sights and think that there is no God. Yeah. You know, the Bible itself, you know, the heavens above declare his glory. And that should be enough for us to believe that there is a God and that we are his creation. And uh, we should read the Bible, find out what it says, see what he wants us to do and do it. <laughs> I love it. I think that's a great, that's a great place to end our show today. So Dr. Brown, thank you so much for being on the program. I really appreciate it and appreciate all you do. Well, thank you. And thank you for offering to give my book. I'd like anyone who wants to read it to have it. Absolutely. I'm going to, um, we'll, we'll put that out there and, and hopefully some people will be able to get, get a hold of that and, uh, put it to good use. 
Um, thanks for being here for those of you who are listening. And uh, this will be uh, all over the uh, social media platforms. You can check it out there in our archive, also on our website, educateforlife.org. All kinds of resources for you on my website um, to help you become a better equipped to be able to light, to be able to be a light and a blessing to the people around you. We do have some um, special guests coming up very soon. Um, we have a gentleman who is in, I believe it is South Carolina, who, who is currently traveling from public school to public school with a uh, big van, and he actually teaches classes on uh, the Bible and science and all these good things, and the schools legally are allowed to give credit for that. So I think that's something uh, you're going to want to tune in for. He's working really hard, and it's something that more people, if they knew about it, I think would take advantage of. So um, we'll be back here again next week, and uh, uh, look forward to being with you. Thank you so much for joining us, and I hope you have a wonderful evening.